Welcome to Alligator Preserves, everyone. I am your host, Laurel McCarg, and I am so honored today, and you're going to be blown away. I am going to be introducing you to a New York Times bestseller of a book called War of the Rats. But what we're going to talk about today is David L. Robbins' book, Isaac Speakin. We'll talk about some other things too, but you're going to want to listen to this interview. So stick around. Welcome to Alligator Preserves, a weekly podcast about revealing yourself through storytelling, story reading, and story writing, but probably not story arithmetic, because that's not a thing. You just might surprise yourself with the secrets you'll uncover. David. Morning. Good morning. Good afternoon. Yeah, yeah. I'm on the East Coast, so it's afternoon. You're in Virginia, yes? And I'm going to stay here. Yes, ma'am. All right. I have done some time in Virginia back in my army days, Fort Eustace. Mm-hmm. And and then we were stationed uh, near near DC. Yeah, we have spent a lot. Of, of course, I'm from Braintree, Massachusetts, so I grew up on the East Coast, but I'm a co- yeah. I'm a Colorado girl now, I gotta say. I I I love Virginia. I, I, I don't mean it to be a zero sum game, but I feel it's the, the finest place in America to live. I, I I was born I'm one of those really lucky people that lives in the city of his birth unapologetically. Um, I love my city. I serve my city. Um, I'm an ambassador for my city and I, I'm in Richmond and I, I feel I live in the most fortunate place in, in America to live. That's a great, I'm very happy with my town. That's a yeah. great feeling to have. And Not David, many people yeah, live in the city of their birth and love it so much, yeah. you know, when I lived in Leadville and taught in the high school there, I used to tell my students, you've all got to get out of Leadville at one point or another so you can either decide that someplace else is better for you or you will come back and appreciate where you grew up. So mm-hmm. I think I think that's important. I think you've done some traveling. A bit. <laughs> so I, I was going to ask you to tell our readers what you would want them to know about you rather than me listing off a bunch of things. What do you want listeners to know about you? Well, first thing I'd like to know is that I don't know any of the questions Laurel's going to ask me. Um, Yeah. We, we, we had uh, discussed my approving of the questions in advance and I, Laurel and I um, decided that extemporaneity was the best way to go. So um, uh, I I want you guys to know, I I don't know what Laurel's going to ask and I'm going to make it up as I go along. So I ask your forbearance and appreciation for my best effort. <laughs> um, I think the thing I'd like people to know about me first is, is that um, I, in the context of being a writer, I will, will do two categories, me as a dude and me as, a, as an artist. And I'm not here because I'm a guy, I'm here because of, you know, as my role as an artist. And I think the thing that I care most about uh, as an artist is other artists. Aside from my own ability to make a living as a writer, which of course we all care about, but <clears throat> I care a great deal about this subject. This subject, Laurel, dear to my heart, is the lack of appreciation that writers tend to get. And I mean those of us who, who sit down and do it, try to do it for a living, try to do it so well that other people will pay us you know, for what we write. There's a level of professionalism to that. Too often, too often, um, people will say, oh, when I retire, I'm going to write. And I go, oh, yeah, 
that never goes the other way. No writer retires and says they're going to be a surgeon or an airline pilot. Too many writing teachers say things like, just get it out of your hands, which is disrespectful to the art form. That's like a dancing teacher saying, just jump up and down, and at some point it'll become a dance. Or just hit that block of stone with you know a hammer and a, a screwdriver, and at some point it'll become a statue. No, I, I, I don't think that writing teachers often enough equip aspirant writers with the proper skill sets to become storytellers. I don't think they themselves understand writing at a depth where they can actually teach the craft of it. I think they teach inspiration and imagination and talent as defaults because they don't know the mechanics of writing. And I firmly believe that if I packed your lunch, you go where you like because you got lunch. You can go all day. You know, if I help you with the tools, if I give you the tools, if I give you, here's a hammer, here's a nail, here's a level, here's a saw, build what you build. But if I, if I don't, if I don't give uh, my students, and I do a lot of teaching, and we can cover later the various places I end up teaching, and I'm honored to do all that. Self-publishing has been a great renaissance to open up to a great many voices. It has also had the inevitable effect of downgrading what we consider to be publishable writing. And I'm not anti. I'm pro-voices. I'm pro-writer. But somehow or another, the one has outdistanced the other, I feel. I feel that people that are writing teachers and, 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 and smaller publishers, great. I'm all for it. I, I, I support them and participate. But I don't want to lose sight of what the bar is, where the bar is. Good writing, good storytelling can't become just get it out of your hand. They can't become, they can't become, I've had a fascinating life as a soldier, as a surgeon, as a pilot, as a mother, you know, as a person, I've had a fascinating life and I'll just tell my life. And, and what I tell all the students that I teach, if I teach nonfiction, I say the first thing you need to know is your life is not a story. A story is a story. Your life is no more a story than a palette of paint is a painting. I mean, that's the thing that I, I want people to understand is, 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 if you are writing a story, whether it's your personal story, a live story, one you make up, that's here. That's the palette. It's got all the different colors you need. Here is a canvas, blank white canvas. You just don't take the paint and smush it on the canvas and call it a story. We occupy the space between the paint and the painting. We occupy the space between the story, the, the live or the, or, the, or the imagined story, and the telling of that story. That's an art form. That's the raw material of the art form. And all too often, I find when I try to read something, I find people just skipping this process of learning to be a storyteller and going right to the telling of it. And so to try to wrap this up, I try to occupy that space between the, the paint and the painting, between the hammer and the chisel and the block of marble. There's an artist that occupies this space. And I want writers to struggle with the art to learn the craft, learn the style, then tell what you tell. And I will say that any story, Thucydides said stories happen to storytellers. And I will say that if, if you haven't been published, if you're watching this, this, this uh, Zoom cast and, and you want some advice from me right out of the gate, I don't think it matters what you write if you write it well. Every story well told is worth reading. 
And and if you don't write well, your story better be damned compelling. But if you write it well and it's compelling, you will get published because there's so much. There's so much need and even avarice for, for material out there. I, I'll inhale. I, I, uh, in, inhale while I'll, I tell our authors that right before I hit record on this, I told you that I was going to gush over this book because... You're, I, I think every writer, and I, I rarely, I've never done this before. I've never done this with any of the authors that I've interviewed before. You're the first. I think every writer, whether they're aspiring or accomplished, should read Isaac Speakin because of the craft, because of how you tell these stories. And there are so many stories in here. I was absolutely blown away. So there's my gush. Everyone needs to read this for the story and to learn. I mean, I have so many things in here underlined that I could spend a day going through things with you. And I'm going to read a few little sections later, but oh my gosh, this pretty much blew me away. So would you do something very silly and give our listeners the elevator pitch for Isaac speaking? Yes. How many floors am I right? Riding in this elevator. Five floors. Five floors. Okay. I believe that the story of the creation of the state of Israel is one of the greatest adventures of the 20th century. The last time it was told well was um, Leon Uris in Exodus, and that was written in 1959, before a great many archives, before a lot of the history of Israel was written. So, what I did was I went back and I'm revisiting the story of the creation of Israel as one of the great geopolitical events of the 20th century that resonates today, and I'm writing it with a more contemporary sense. Um, I don't know that Leon Uris accurately portrayed the Palestinian um, uh, travails and the violence and the tumult that has been revealed over the last 75 years of archives opening and, and witness testimony. So I'm trying to tell a really compelling story that has grown in scope as history has opened itself up to it in a contemporary voice, in a contemporary sense. Tell me why you wrote it. Why? Why this topic? I don't know the answer to that. I will say this. I've written 16 novels, most of them historical fiction, and I couldn't write this book until I was good enough. I've always wanted to write this book. And, and there's a sequel coming out in May. Um, but I've, oh yeah, but I've, thank you for that reaction. But I've always wanted to tell this story ever since I read Exodus. But it's so huge that I had to write about D-Day and the fall of Berlin and Stalingrad and Kennedy and Khrushchev and just and, and, and the Cold War. And I had to write about so many huge historical epochs to, to understand, to encapsulate the size of this story. The key to historical fiction is maintaining the scope through the, the intensely personal. You know, you, you, you ratchet down the microscope to see one, two, three, four players. They have to represent the whole microcosm. That's, whew, this story has so many eyes on it, so many different views of Israel. It's so problematic, you know, as, again, as a geopolitical force in, in, in 20th century, leading into 21st century history. It's so problematic that trying to capture the personal stories alongside the tumult and the violence of, of, of the larger stories was something I, I've always wanted to do. Why? Why? Okay. Well, because of the challenge, first of all. And secondly, because 
because it needs to be done. There's so much myth, so much myth about the Palestinians and, 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 and the Jewish Israelis and Muslim versus Jew and Israeli versus Palestinian. And there's so much verses, you know, so much. Um, and, and it's surrounded in a lot of myth. I read a wonderful line that fact is malleable, memory is absolute. And that seems backwards, but it seems to be the epoch we're in, right? Memory becomes unassailable. This is what I recall. And, and we go, well, no, that's not true. I, ah, yes, but I recall it. And so I'm trying to write a book, and this will be part of a series uh, of five books about the, the, the major wars of Israel, them calling the promised wars, the series. Um, I'm trying to correct the record. I'm trying to leave behind Laurel a document. For me, this feels like a grand, a grand thing to take on, you know, a, a series of books that is just, I try to make it historically pristine. Others will tell me how well I did on that. But I feel that if when I'm done, and I'm deep into my 70s, uh, when I'm done, you can read all five of these books and go, I know a lot more about the, the, the creation of the Israeli state and the circumstances between the Palestinian and, and, and the Jewish Israeli the Muslim and the Jew, the Israeli and the Palestinian, the causations of these troubles are far more complex and far more deep than any newscast we all watch. And the British, um, the, the, the British involvement in it, which yeah. I, again, I'm like, what? We, we what don't, we're not, we're not taught this. And I, right. I was, I was shocked. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the British did not cover themselves in glory as occupants. Occupiers of the world in the 20th century, did they? They're pretty much kicked out everywhere. You know, all love to my British brothers and sisters, but, you know, it's hard to occupy, hard to be an occupier. Ask the Soviet Union, ask the British Empire. People tend to gravitate towards freedom. They just will. And the British found that out in Israel. Um, my favorite quote from Churchill in this arena was, in the middle of the Troubles, trying to pacify Israel. Around 1946, Churchill said, there are 100,000 Jewish men of military age in Palestine. I have 100,000 soldiers in Palestine, and they still will not be pacified. You know, he had one soldier per military age male and still could not quiet the, the, the Jewish quest and thirst for independence, which itself was mirrored on the Palestinian side, their own wanting independence. And, and look, everybody wants a peaceful bed to sleep in. Everybody wants their children to do well. The other reason why I found this, this story about Israel and the Palestinians so compelling is that people are so similar and they want the same things. Yes, and what you did in this book, which again, surprised and delighted me, was that you illustrate both sides with such deep feeling and understanding of both, and I say both, I really mean all sides of the problems in a way that was just made me think, wow, I, I never would have thought that or understood that. I mean, you, you've done something brilliant here. Oh, thank you. Uh, I'll cop to not the brilliant part. I'll leave that for others. Um, but I, I will say that what you just said gratifies me because it's what I set out to do. I set out to have my readers go, loved it. It was a great, uh, expensive time, you know, the effort to read this. Yeah, yeah, good story, great characters, good writing. But wow, I didn't know makes my heart flutter because I could write a lot of things, right? I could write 
outer space and science fiction and dysfunctional family fiction and all those things. But as a, as a historian and as an historical writer, to have someone clever like yourself say Republic attribution, wow, I didn't know that. That's that's the core for me. That's the heart that I'm going for. Well, you you got it. You got my heart in every single page I turned on that. Thanks. So you you are the son of two World War II veterans. I want to know about your parents. I want to know what it was like growing up with two World War II veterans. What a great question. Okay, I have two answers. One is in the category of things I want people to know about me slash don't want people to know about me. Is my father won my mother in a poker game. Um, it's true. It's true. Uh, he was out in Pearl Harbor where he was stationed. He was a 26 year old uh, uh, Army Air Corps sergeant. And uh, he's playing poker with a guy, uh, you know, at, 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 at Pearl, uh, at King Island at Pearl. And the, the, the family story goes like this. So the guy ran out of money. Dad was betting the pot. And the guy took his wallet, turned it upside down and said, hey, Sam, I don't need more money. And a small little dime store, one by two, you know, nickel, nickel photographs fell out. And it was a pretty little girl from Pittsburgh and little Jewish girl. And my dad apparently picked up the picture and said, well, this will be your IOU. I want the name and I want the address. And the guy says, whoa, 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 Sam, that's my girlfriend. Dad says, well, then don't better. And he like reaches for the pot. And the guy says, OK, OK, because he's confident in his hand. Cut to the chase. Dan, Dad wins the ham. He's got the dress, Carol Jacob, uh, Carol Gladys Jacobs in um, Overland Street, Squirrel Hill, Pens Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He writes her. My mom's a 16-year-old high school sophomore. My dad's uh, a 20, at this point, a 24-year-old sergeant in the Army Air Corps out in Pearl Harbor. So they strike up a, 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 a correspondence. My mother gets this letter out of the blue. This is, hey, uh, uh, I won you in a poker game, and I don't think you should date a guy who would bet you in a poker game. I would never do that, right? So they have this correspondence. Now, my mother falls in love with Sergeant Sam through the mails, and so she does the reasonable thing, lies on her uh, her, her, uh, her enlistment papers, and the Packard comes and picks her up. And my grandfather, who could have knocked her out as a 17-year-old kid, doesn't, says, well, because that's my mother, right? And so he just says, all right, we'll see us. So my mother ends up in basic training in Daytona Beach. And, and so my father continues to write her letters to Squirrel Hill, Pennsylvania. My Aunt Alma, who told me this story, my Aunt Alma, my mother's younger sister, took the letters from my father from Pearl Harbor, put them in a separate envelope, mailed them to my mother in, in, in Daytona at basic training. My mother writes my father back, not to Pearl Harbor, but back to my Aunt Alma, who puts him in a separate envelope and sends them to Pearl Harbor, postmarked Pittsburgh. So the effect of this is my father did not know my mother was in basic training. He continued to write her, and she never mentioned it. My mother gets her first duty station when she gets out of basic, which she requests King Island, Pearl Harbor. She goes out to Pearl Harbor 1940 before the attack. And so she goes to the, this, this, uh, the, the chaplain and says, hey, because um, this is back in the day before computers, of course, you couldn't find Sergeant Sam Rabinowitz, you know, 50,000 people. So my mother casts this net. She goes to this chaplain and says, I would like to throw a, uh, a dance every Sunday after church. And so she wrote to my father saying, hey, um, 
Are there any social things? Of course, he goes back to Pittsburgh, goes back to Pearl Harbor, and 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 he, she kind of convinces him to start going. He goes, oh, those dances sound lovely. You should go. So he does, and she watches for him for a month or so, and there he is. And he, apparently, she walked up to him and said, "So, yo." And my dad had no idea she was in the army. First time my father ever laid eyes on my mother, <laughs> she was in uniform. She outranked him, and it was in a war zone. So, yeah. Uh, and then here we are. Oh, my gosh. So that's, yeah, yeah, true true story. I wrote a play about that called Sam and Carol, which which had a lovely production. Anyway, so growing up with World War II parents, to skip to the actual question. Um, <laughs> I loved I loved the lead up. Oh, my yeah, gosh. Was, um, was the basis of a lot of my notions of heroism and, and adulthood. I grew up on a street in a place called Sandston, which is just outside the city of Richmond. It is on, it is actually on the wrong side of the railroad tracks. Um, small little little town out by the airport. My dad worked at the airport, and 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 you could walk down the streets in, in the 1950s when I grew up on this street uh, in the early 60s, and and everybody was a veteran. See, there was. So you'd walk down the street and there was the bulge and there was Iwo Jima and our house was Pearl Harbor in the Pacific. And there was the air war over Berlin and there was a medic and there was a, an officer and there was a, a Marine from Guadalcanal. And there was a, an, you know, and every house was known for the, the service of its occupants. Right. And we were part of that. And I was proud of that. Now, my father had multiple sclerosis. He, so I grew up with a man who had MS and Somehow or another, my father and his limp and that um, made him, in my mind, even more heroic, even more special because it felt like a mark of the war, right? And I remember, obviously, as a young child, there was a very bad accident at the corner uh, of, of Union and uh, Nagley, <clears throat> the other street. All the streets were named after Confederate generals. <laughs> Weird. Now, welcome to Richmond. Um, and, and, uh, and I just remember... I was walking with my dad and, and we heard this accident and he couldn't run very well, kind of did the Amos McCoy thing, you know, with the, and, but he ran, walked, stumbled to the corner and these people poured out of their houses, Laurel. And I remember standing there watching, there was a fire and a smoke because, you know, old cars and they burned. Um, and I remember seeing all these guys that were my dad's pals and that were my neighbors become young again. There were the nurses, right? Who were shouting orders. There were guys yelling, give me this, give me that, stat, stat, look out for this. You know, um, my dad was right in the thick of it, you know, because he was like a master sergeant. So he, you know, he knew how to bark orders. And things. And, and I'll never forget seeing these middle-aged men become young again, become soldiers again in this moment of crisis. It was burned on my memory. And, and that has always, so my father's infirmity with MS and watching him struggle with that through his life and, and these little episodes and that status of being the Pearl Harbor house, you know, or the, 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 there was the bulge. There was, you know, again, there was Iwo Jima all on our street. It meant a lot to me. And, and it became my notion of what heroism is, is, is the quietness of it. We don't talk about it. The, we do the work at hand, you know, heroism is not who you are. It's what you've done. You know, it's not what you say. It's what you've done. Tell me what your mother was like. Oh. Is like. How long is that elevator ride? Oh. (laughs) My mother, well, the the same woman who lied about her age to join the military, did all that wacky stuff, 
was wacky her whole life. So here's what I got. And we all have had parents. It's an obvious statement. And we ask ourselves sometimes, what did I get from my mom and dad? Like, did I get my dad's temper? Did I get my mom's flightiness? Well, I got the best that both of my parents had to offer. My father, in his time, worked four jobs just to keep roof on the head and, you know, gruel on the table, right? My mother um, was an absolute abject liar. She had no relationship with the truth. Truth wasn't that kind to her, so tell the truth. She didn't like it that much in return. But my mother's lies were always benign. See, they were always like what you, what she thought of you, what you could have been. You know, uh, when she would describe me, I was always far smarter than I am. My brother was a hero in Vietnam. My other brother was a professional baseball player. None of it true. But, you know, my mother was, was a fabulist is a good word for her. Um, so I picked up my mother's ability to see, to see the world as it could be, which is what a fiction writer does, right? To see the connection between the, the real and the unreal and to track the unreal uh, between the real dots. But I got my dad's junkyard dog, get her done. So I, I, um, I, developed, I developed my father's ability. The only way to really annoy me is ask me how it's going. Because I'll look at you and go, didn't I tell you what I was going to do? Why are you asking me? Just annoys me. Because I have my father's sense of responsibility, right? My father's, you know, junkyard dog. Close the chain link fence. Stay here. Guard the junkyard. You know, and that's, I've got that, but I use that as an artist, which is the part that comes from my mother. Your mother so my was a storyteller. Was, uh, she was a storyteller. She was a storyteller. Yeah. My mother uh, was, a, was a substitute teacher. Neither of my parents had high school degrees, so their careers were, you know, as good as they could make them. But my mom ran uh, recreation centers, um, and, uh, and I, so I grew up with my mother roller skating and putting together little uh, cabins out of popsicle sticks and playing a lot of tetherball. <laughs> That's awesome. I would like for you at this point to read maybe a short section of Isaac Speakin to give our listeners a feel for your writing, which again, I'm gushing over because, I, and I'm going to read some things later, but I mean, you, you use subtext. I mean, you, do, you don't even have to say certain things. You're, you're, the way you use your dialogue is like, oh my gosh. I am right there, and I know what they're saying, even though those aren't the words that I'm reading in the dialogue. Will you ask me about that on the backside of this? Because that's actually on purpose, that, that uh, thing you just said. All right. I'll try to remember. About, about, about what okay. I'm not saying. Okay. All right. Well, well, thank you for that. It's very flattering. Um, and, and folks, and hopefully there are a lot of you, with your indulgence, I will just read the first two pages of the book. This is uh, Eva chapter one. And and for those just listening, I really, you need to go to the YouTube version of this to, to visit with us. And, but if, for those of you just listening, we are visiting with David L. Brooks, author of Isaac Speakin and what, 13, 14 other books? Yeah. 14 other. Yeah. And it's David Robbins. But if you take books and Robbins, you get Brooks. What did I say? What did I say? David Brooks. Did, okay. Oh was, my um, gosh. We are with David L. Robbins, author of <laughs> Isaac Speaking. Oh, my gosh. I'm so embarrassed because I'm looking right at hey, it. Well, call me what you want. Just don't call me late for supper. That's okay. what my dad <laughs> You're going to read right, chapter, chapter one. one. Eva, September 28, 1940, Vienna. In his blue opera coat 
Eva's father rode beside her on the tram to the train station. Her mother and young sister filled the seat behind. Her father said nothing on the way. This was how he kept from shouting. At the station, the eastbound locomotive steamed while porters' bells rang. The platform bustled with departure. Eva stood before the open door of a packed passenger car. Every window held faces in profile and tears. Again, Eva told her father his decision to stay in Vienna was dangerous and foolish. He was being hard-headed. On no other day had she spoken to him like this, but she needed to be fearless at the last or carry away with her the burden of holding her own tongue. Her father lowered his head until his long gray goatee touched his starched collar. Gabby broke from her mother to hug Eva's waist. Eva crooked an arm around her sister. Her father spoke in a rained voice. You chose to go. I want all of us to go. Edvard, her mother stroked his arm from behind because she wanted him to speak gently. With effort, he did. We will be all right. You believe this? The Germans, you believe this? There are a quarter million Jews in Vienna. What can they do? Eva could imagine, and so could he. Why say it aloud if he would not? You're sending me away. We are not sending you away. His tone rose. Her mother touched her, his arm again. You asked for this. I want us to be safe. I'm afraid. So you leave your home. You leave my protection. I leave so you'll come behind me. You don't believe I can protect you. Say it. Say you don't. I don't. Not from the Germans. Good. You have that much courage at least. She indicated the many cars packed with Jews. These people don't feel safe here either. I'm not their father. I want my family to stay here. You want us to go. You, you make me say the hardest thing a father can say. So go. Follow me. I'll have everything waiting for you in Palestine. Will you have your grandfather's shop there? Papa, if I leave, the Germans will take it and our home. They'll empty my bank accounts. We'll have nothing, nothing to come back to. This is what I have. This is what my family built, and I should leave it? Stand here quietly while you tear everything to pieces? Papa, you can have a shop in Palestine. It wouldn't be my father's. But it would, you see, it would. The locomotive screeched. Ghosts of steam riffled past. Eva cupped her small sister's head. Let me take Gabby. Her father had said all he was going to. He gestured for Eva's mother to pull the younger girl away. Her mother bust Eva's cheek. The child. Muti, make him come. Her mother blinked above a final smile. Make him? Did the two of you just meet? Come, before it gets too late, promise. We'll be all right. Eva embraced her. She found nothing to whisper into the soft curtain of her mother's hair. She couldn't beg or argue more or say goodbye. Eva kissed her cheek. Her father took a backward step with hands that she had never before seen shake. He unbuttoned his blue opera coat. He smiled, too. He wanted to be remembered smiling. He held the long coat out for her to step into. Eva turned her back for him to drape the coat across her shoulders. He patted her arms from behind. With a kiss on the crown of her head, her father pushed Eva gently to the train. Ah, oh, and what a way to start. You've got the coat in there, which plays such a role later in the story. Did you know that it would? Did you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> and and so already you've established that nothing is easy and we understand 
both desires, the desire to get away, to be safe, the desire to hold on to home and what you know and belief that you can be safe. And they're both right. They're, they're both right. And, and I want to return. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you for the opportunity to read that. Um, I want to return to that observation you made a while ago about all of the subtext. How, how, yeah, all the, how powerful you felt the characterizations were. So here's what I'm exploring. I, I'm, I'm, it's called a lacuna, the, 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 the absence. A donut hole is a lacuna. Um, lacuna, L-A-C-U-N-A? C-U-N-A, yeah. Um, and and uh, it, it's an absence that defines presence, right? So like a donut hole defines the donut. So what if you consider that opening chapter, there's a real dearth of interiority. And throughout the book, I don't rely very, very much on interiority. I don't tell the reader a lot of what's going on inside my characters' heads and hearts. There's a lot of reasons for that. One is if I create that vacuum, an interested and engaged reader will fill it, right? So what you just said about loss and longing, and but you'll notice all those are your conclusions. All I gave you was setting and dialogue and action. There's very little Eva felt, Eva thought, Eva wanted. I just have them say it and do it and, and see it. And I do that for the entire book. And what I'm doing is I'm exploring how powerful it can be to really recruit my reader as, as, as a co-conspirator in the book. And every time I go into some sort of interiority and explain what my characters are thinking or give them some memory from their past that informs their presence, I feel I'm cheating a little bit. I'm cheating the reader of the opportunity to do that for me, do that for themselves. So right now, folks, if you're watching, and Laurel, if you're watching, <laughs> um, you can't read my thoughts, and you don't know what's in my heart. You're drawing conclusions from the tone of my voice, from the motions of my hands, you know, from, from, from what you see and hear. Well, that's how life is spent. We're not gifted with being able to ride around in someone's head between their ears. Yet you can't pick up contemporary fiction that does not start with two or three pages of, of, of hindsight and insight and thoughts and memories, none of which I have access to. So what I'm trying to do is explore with my work the actual um, phenomenological experience of gaining information about a fellow human being. I do it by observation. I do it by listening, watching, feeling, you know, the senses. And I don't have access to your heart. I know what you're thinking about my book by basically what you've said, what you've written, and, and, and what I can see when, when you say those words. Then I draw those conclusions. So I, I think that every time somebody lapses into um, the internal world of their characters, stealing from the reader just a little bit. And, and I, I'm glad that you feel the characters were so vivid because I will say to you, they were vivid because they were 50% you. They're, 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 there's no wrong answer as long as you have an answer. <laughs> and and you were not present. You, you, David Robbins, were not present in this. I never once thought about the author of this book because I was so with the characters and what was happening and what they were saying and what they weren't saying. And what they were saying to you. To me. I mean, to me, that, that, that's so important. Well, it seems to be something to take, take for granted. But there's a place where um, 
there's there's places throughout the book where choices are made, a lot of choices, right? Vince decides to to stay, and and Eva decides to leave, and and I don't tell you why, I tell you what, and then I leave the reader to go, oh, I, I would have done that, and if I have done that, I'd have done it for these reasons, and those are profound truths. Now, folks, if you're out there with a notebook and you're hoping I'll say something noteworthy, I I, I think I'm about to. There's two kinds of truth, Laurel. This is a pedagogical moment, okay. I hope. Uh, there's two kinds of truth. Uh, there's, there's your absolute truth and your profound truth. An absolute truth is that truth, the opposite of which is always false. Two plus two is four. Any other answer? Wrong. Absolute truths are what happened. 1945, December 7th, yada, yada. You know, it, it, it is the, the, the ineluctable, unavoidable, unchangeable truth of the story. Then there's profound truth, you see, and a profound truth is that truth, the opposite of which is also true. The opposite of love, indifference, the opposite of courage, cowardice, the opposite of hatred, love, the opposite of, you know, you name it, focus, lack of attention, whatever, uh, the loyalty, the opposite of betrayal. They can all be true. Now, here's the thing to scribble down, folks. Absolute truths are what make us different. I will never be an astronaut. I will never be a soldier in, in the Great War. I will never be a nurse. I will never discover radiation, right? Those are the absolute truths that make us different. Profound truths make us the same. See, all of us have had moms and dads. All of us have loved. All of us have lost. All of us have kicked the dust in, 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 in despair. All of us have shaken the fist in fury. All of us have praised uh, some deity or other or our own luck. Right. We've all had a loved one's head on our shoulder. We've all held a child. Right. Those are the profound truths, love, betrayal, indifference. And, and so what I try to do is I try to curate the really best absolute truths I can. I try to pick dialogue and settings and descriptions. And I invite and I don't invite you to take part there. I invite you to imagine what they look like and I try to make them vivid. But then when I get to the profound truths, why does evil leave her family? I let you decide. And in leaving it to you, you join me in the story. And then we get to the end of it, then my good and clever friend Laurel says, wow, these characters are so vivid. And I go, but if you critically go back and find the number of places I tell you how to feel, it's a dozen, over 600 pages. You know, it's all you joining me in determining. And your conclusions may not be mine. That matters not to me. It matters to me to have you, you come up with a reason. As long as that reason is a profound truth, as long as I've excited something in your life that seems familiar to you, as opposed to the unfamiliarity of the absolute truths, ain't none of us alive in Israel 1940, right, or Vienna, but all of us have had moms and dads, all of us have waved goodbye, and I got to go. Those poignant moments are the ones that I don't try to steal from the reader, and that's on purpose, and that's how I teach. I teach that technique. And so right now, any author out there, any writer out there who's who's got a work in progress, do global searches on your document for the word thought, for the word believed, for the word remembered. Recalled, yeah. Recalled. Seriously, because you're right. That is that is a cop-out in a way. It's, it's easy to do that. So much more difficult yeah. for what you've done. And you know, I, I've taught language arts in, in the past, in my my distant past, and the whole idea of figurative language, right? And 
And sometimes I, I'll read a book and I'll just shake my head because the figurative language is so forced and it just makes me cringe. But I, like I said, I, I have so many things underlined in here. I just want to read a couple, just, just to share a couple things that just made me go, oh, the whispers along the rail began to mount. Gideon raised an arm in the dark. Others took up the signal, lifting their hands and shushing each other in a ripple. The immigrants quieted and the waves breathed for them. I have chills reading that right mm. now. It that it's absolutely gorgeous. It where where we meet Malik in, in here, Malik is our dark bearded Arab character. I I, I fell in love with him. I, I didn't I didn't expect to. Rivka had to step aside to let the Arab stride past. She came no higher than his shoulder. His robe kicked up behind him. He moved with the smells of sand and salt. And like the moon, if the moon had a smell, musty and ancient. Uh, ha! <laughs> Absolutely gorgeous. Do one more. To <laughs> me. I, uh, I, 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 mar I marked a couple. I marked a couple. Where am I? All my little things. Okay. Here we are. R Rivka again. Am I pronouncing her name correctly? Rivka? Yes. Rivka drew a breath of the ancient view. No one in history had ever stood where she did because she had created this spot. Even so, no wall or terrace could match the baby, the Jewish girl who'd not had to climb this hill, but arrived on top of it. And this is, you know, where there's the first birth of a new baby on this, in this new land. Sorry, I just enjoyed that enough to ask you to do one more. <laughs> Thank the, you. The rumble became a quake, a horror in the earth. You don't just say it was noisy. I mean, oh my gosh, I, I, have, I have so many. Thank you for that, Laurel. Hugo, your character Hugo. Yeah. I was going to ask if if any of the characters were based on people you know, but I'm, I'm guessing probably not. But you've done a tremendous amount of research, I know, on this. Your character Hugo irritated me, angered me. I wanted to hug him. I love him. He is a fantastically complex character, as are most of, I would say, all of the characters in this story. But he, boy, you really got someone unique in the character of Hugo. Well, thank you again. I'll, I'll probably say thank you a lot before this interview's over. Thank you for that. Um, so here's how I developed the three principal characters in this book. Uh, Vince, who's an American reporter. Uh, Hugo, who's a survivor of the Holocaust and joins the Irgun in Palestine. And uh, Rivka, who is a, a kibbutznik. Now, Rivka believes that is the state of Israel or, or homeland for the Jews can be created by the sea, by planting it, by children, by plants, by groves, right? Um, Hugo believes that Palestine must be won for the Jew by the gun, which is, you know, a kind of Zionist, Jewish way of looking at it. And Vince is your agnostic reporter. He represents uh, the, the New York Times Herald, and he's also rooted in a real character, two real characters, a guy named Bilby and a guy named Eye of Stone, who were Herald Tribune reporters in Palestine at the time. And I read both their memoirs. 
So there's these three characters. There's Vince, the American reporter, Rivka, the, the kibbutznik, Hugo, the Holocaust survivor, um, and Gunnist. And I created them because I felt, again, we talked about my recreation of, of Exodus by Eurus. So I had a, a structure that I didn't that I didn't know that Eurus used. I felt there were three miracles to the creation of the state of Israel. One was the agricultural, one was the um, military, one was the diplomatic, right? The diplomatic creation of the state of Israel is a miracle. The UN would support this, that the, that the British would leave, all those things, right? The, the agricultural miracle, anybody who visits Israel remarks on that. Like, okay, the desalination, the planting of the groves, the, the, the soil, just it's an amazing place to see have arisen out of the tendrils of the, of the Sinai. And the third one, of course, the military. How 500,000 uh, Jews managed to win a country against 400 million Arabs, you know, all poised against them. Um, so I thought each one of those required a character. So Vince is my, as an, as an American, an agnostic because he's an American, he's able to give us an unfettered view of the diplomatic accomplishments. You know, Vince can report on Ben-Gurion and, and the UN and, 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 and the, the the, the British and the privations of the Arabs and things. Rivka obviously represents the agricultural miracle because she's there on a kibbutz and, and she gives the book its name. The kibbutz she's on, on the edge of the Negev, south of, of Jerusalem, which is there, uh, it's called Meswat Yitzchak, which is Isaac's beak. And the, 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 the action of the book primarily focuses in Meswat Yitzchak. Then of course there's Hugo, and I didn't want to use a Haganah soldier. Um, I wanted someone with Yirgun, um, and so Hugo represents the violence, the tumult, the military, the, the, the taking by the gun of Palestine from the Arab, the, the, the indigenous Arabs to create the state of Israel. So those three miracles are created in these three characters. Hugo in particular comes from a fascinating study I read called The Worm at the Core about terror management theory. Terror management theory, which I don't know if it's been defrocked or not. But I found it fascinating. It essentially says that when, if you endure something terribly uh, traumatic, that we tend to fade backwards into a crowd, that we tend to give up our individualism and become something greater. The same way a porcupine sends out its pines to look bigger, or a peacock spreads its tail to look bigger, or a rhino or a bull paws the ground to create a dust cloud around it, on and on and on. And so they did an experiment that was a very famous one in its time. They took uh, people and they put them in a room. And in this room was a bowl of black ink, an empty bowl. Uh, and in the black ink, by the way, was sand and an empty bowl, an American flag, a nail, and a Catholic cross. And they would show people horrible movies about plane accidents and the Holocaust and on and on. And then they would show other people kittens and unicorns. And they would say to the kitten and unicorn crowd, hey, we want you to go in that room and do two things. Put that cross on that wall and separate that sand out of the black ink. Now, the people who were not traumatized just said, well, okay, they laid the American flag over the empty bowl, poured the sandy ink through it, sanded out the, the sand, and took the cross and used it to bang the nail and hung the cross. By and large, the people who had been traumatized would not use the cross as a hammer and would not defile the American flag with ink because to them, they were symbols of the greater. They were symbols of their haven the place to retreat to, and they would not defile them. So Hugo has just survived the Holocaust when we meet him. And in a, in a very key line, 
Laurel, Vince, the reporter who, is, who encounters Hugo in the camp at Buchenwald, says to him, why don't you come to America? And if you recall, Hugo says, my own particular brand of terror demands that when the bastards come again, I have a gun. And so Hugo was born in that book I read, The Worm at the Core, about terror management. I wanted to explore um, what a man, he could not go back to Germany. They made him clean the cobblestones with a toothbrush. He couldn't go back to his old neighborhood as a Jew. Where would he go? Well, he could go to America, but he wouldn't feel safe. He wouldn't feel safe even in America. So So his own particular brand of terror coming out of the trauma of the Holocaust was, no, when they come again, I'll have a gun. And that's what leads him to the Irgun. That's how Hugo was born. Awesome characters. All right. We're going to, and I'm going to come back to the book in a minute, but I want to shift a little bit and I want to talk about censorship. And the reason I want to talk about censorship is because I met you at the Rocky Mountain Fiction Writers Conference. You were one of the keynote speakers and you were wonderful. And I remember after your speech, congratulating you on being brave and and treating the audience as adults and adults. I remember you said that and and you know believing that we could handle your stories, which oh might have had might have had a bad word or two in them, and you were wonderful. And what two weeks later, I see an apology letter in my email from you, and I'm and I'm thinking what. What? Why are you apologizing for maybe offending someone? So what are your thoughts? <laughs> well, there are multiple. First of all, everybody that knows you knows you're in Colorado, and this was in Denver. Mm-hmm. Culturally, perhaps Denver, and I want to go on record as saying I had the best time. I was treated so well in Denver. I was treated like, you know, with respect and generosity. I'm still in touch with a couple people from the conference, yourself included. Here's how I got in this, this predicament. The lady that preceded me as the keynote on Friday night told um, a lot of stories about about being a precocious young girl and always wanting to be a writer and, and, the, uh, and the genesis of her desires to be a writer. And, and I thought, well, what am I going to do? Go up there and talk about myself? I ain't that interesting. You know, my journey to be a writer, uh, I think, pales before what I feel I have to share, again, on these pedagogical things about, about, about being a writer and trying to explore storytelling. So I made the decision, the questionable decision in retrospect, that rather than talk about me, I would tell stories. To exemplify my point that any story, well told, can be a good story. Any story. Does it need to be aliens? Does it need to be, you know, a bank robbery and a heist? Does it need to be tragedy of your family? It could be as mundane as the death of my dog, the death of my father. Let's see, there was three death stories and one about crap in my pants in Turkey. All four quotidian common eh, stories, right? Just bad case of stomach flu and my dog dying and my dad dying. And um, I can't remember the other one, but I'm sure it was as equally bland. But I tried to display that if I told them with the verve in the eye of a storyteller, that Thucydides, that Thucydides quote, that stories happen to storytellers, yeah. that if I told these stories with the kind of a brio, the storyteller, the message I was trying to get across was, folks, it's how matters a lot. Not, not just the what, not just it's a vampire, it's a alien, it's a, again, you know, my parents were homeless, <laughs> but, 
but but the how matters, and I tried to exemplify that. And in the midst of that, I was true to the story, and one of the stories, the the turkey story in particular. Um, the other ones were, you know, fairly sanitized, and I got a good laugh. You know, nothing funnier than my 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 dad dying, <laughs> and um, uh, just. So you folks will wonder, my father's last words were, she's a hooker. <laughs> to That's remind you. <laughs> but those were his actual last words. Um, so, uh, but yeah, um, some people at the conference, which I don't, in all due respect to Denver and, and the Midwest, I'm not from the Midwest. And perhaps it's a bit more homogenous than we are on the East Coast. Out here, they'd have been rolling in the aisles. You know, I'd had a lot of... Uh, diversity of people and viewpoints in the audience and perhaps is a bit more homogenous in Denver. I didn't read the house. So I'm going to dodge your question and say this, that since that event, since I was notified that some people had gotten in touch with the people who ran the Denver conference, who I like unanimously, and I will always say treated me well, and I hope will invite me back. But I, I issued a, a, as eloquent an apology as I could. I said that my, my art is large and sometimes it squeezes out my brain. And, <laughs> and there's nothing more dangerous to somebody like me than a microphone. Um, and, but since that day, since, since that, that, that day, I have stopped cursing. I, have, I no longer curse. And my best friend and I, uh, we have to Venmo each other $3 because she's doing it with me. And <laughs> we Venmo each other $3 instantly. While we're talking, while we're on the phone, we've got this three dollars sent back and forth when we curse. So I'm not cursing anymore. It doesn't serve me. What was it because of that that you are yeah. doing this now? Yeah. Really? And because soon thereafter, my brother came over for dinner, and my brother's a vulgar man, and he was talking about one thing or another. And I, I looked at my friend Lindy and I said, "Do I sound like that?" She goes, "Sometimes." And that was it. I don't want to do it anymore. Because I, Laurel, I don't want to be tolerated. I'm not here. I'm not here to, to invade people's sensibilities. I'm here to hopefully expand their hearts and their knowledge and inspire and, and get what piece of respect and admiration, you know, my poor talents can get me. My, my thinking is this, Laurel. We'll have a personal moment away from writing and things and just be two, two middle-aged folks here. The older I get, which I'm doing right now, the more I understand how difficult life is. How many assaults on the ego there are? How many different uh, slings and arrows our plans make? Uh, you know, like, what is it? Man plans, God laughs. Um, and in the military, you know, no plan survives contact with the enemy. Life obeys that rule. And I find people clothe themselves in whatever, uh, whatever pieces of, of ego they can. They have to pull it out of a bottom of a trunk if they have to invent something like my mother who you know married beneath her you know because she came from a wealthy family and married this guy and this sergeant in the middle of nowhere and so the older i get the more i understand that people do what they have to do to cling life is not easy dealing with each other is not easy dealing with our own wants and desires and our disappointments you know when we have an achievement that check comes in the mail it's like yes and, and it's maybe a day a boy disappointment last years, right? And and we we take the hits so hard. And in my world, so many of people watching this right now want to do what I get to do, you know. And 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 they they would love it and they dream of it. It's a, they they pray for it. And so 
I don't want anybody who encounters me, especially in a professional setting, to see me as anybody other than disrespectful to them, supportive of them, and I don't want to be tolerated. I want to be inspiring, and I can't inspire if 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 I'm uh, if I'm behaving like beneath that station. Again, and, and it's hard. Life's hard, and I don't want to make it harder on anybody else. And I I've done too much of it, and so there. New topic. I'm, I'm going to go back to the book, and this yeah. one, this one, this is going to be a hard question for you. So get ready for a hard question. On page 384 of David Robbins, Isaac Speakin, Mrs. Papel, and again, your your secondary characters, Malik, Mrs. Papel, they are wonderful too. Gabby, they're they're all wonderful. Mrs. Papel got to her feet. I understand. Every bit of this place is precious, but sentiment won't defend it. We need to ask ourselves, are we being too brave? And so that question came to me while I was reading this book. Are they being too brave? Are they, they're, they're defending a place surrounded by people who hate them and who want them gone. How did you get to that question in the book, which is what I think everybody reading it will ask themselves at some point? How would how did how would you answer it? I think I know how you would answer it, but you answer it. Well, I'll give you a, a quote from David Ben Gurion. He's reported to have said, when asked this question, "If you could save all the children of Europe and send none to Palestine." or lose half and keep half, and bring that half to Palestine, which would you choose? And he chose the latter. He said, if I could lose half the children of Europe and save the other half and bring them to Palestine, I would pick that. That's how important Palestine was to these people in that time, in that era. 13% of the Jewish population of Palestine was in uniform, an unheard of percentage, yeah. right? You know, unheard of. Huge, huge percentage. Yeah, yeah. The Zionists view Palestine not just as their home, but as their God-given home, right? I mean, as a Jew, I grew up on the prayers of next year in Jerusalem. And, you know, as a kid, we all gave a dollar to plant a tree in, in Israel somewhere. And, and Israel has a special status. Now, I'm not trying to denigrate the Ukrainians who pour in blood to, you know, hang on to their land either. I'm saying that that similarly, the Jews, especially coming out of the privations of the Holocaust, especially out of uh, coming out of that circumstance, the Jew had no homeland, no homeland. At the end of World War II, you got all these displaced persons, and and so we're trying to place it, right? Say to some cat, so where are you from? He says, I'm from France. Okay, but France. And where are you from? I'm from Poland. Go back to Poland. I'm from Italy. Go back to Italy. But the Jew could not go home. See, so when you talk to the Jew, you could go home. And there was no place called Jew. You know, there's no, what are you? I'm French. I'm Polish. I'm Italian. Uh, but the Jew would say, I'm Jewish. And, and, and the American forces and the Allied forces had no place to send them called Jew. They had a place called France. Right, but they had no place called Jews, so they didn't know what to do with them. And this is how the Jews said the Jew didn't say, I'm French, I'm German, because they could not go back to France or Germany. So they said, I'm Jewish. And that 
to me, is an eloquent testimony of the, the degree to which I had to capture in this book. Remember I said early on I had to write 15 historical novels to write this one? When you're facing these things, you don't come lightly to this. You don't, you got to tiptoe up on this real reverently, you know, and this is a dragon of a story uh, because it's so, because everything I'm saying, Laurel, could be, can be, and, and, and should be questioned by the Palestinian view of this, you know, and the secular view of this. So there's, there's not one, we founded America, the Civil War went this way, you know. Um, it, it's kind of like the complexities of Vietnam. Um, World War II is not complex. Right? It was like, okay, good guys, bad guys. But, but Israel at such a knife's edge. Is it because of the relationship between the, the, the religion and, and the people? You mentioned sec- secular. You mentioned yeah. looking at both of those. Well, I mean, that's... I mean, look, there, there's... There was a desperation to the Jewish people that the world had a great sympathy for, right? In, 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 the, middle, in the middle of the 20th century, a great sympathy for the Jewish plight. And Ben-Gurion and the rest very wisely, at least for their, for their predicament, played on that. Um, Isaac's Beacon details the, uh, the displacement of the British as occupiers of, of Palestine. And, and the British, of course, they're, you know, an empire over a thousand years, they were losing their empire. See, they, they're on the cusp of losing India. They, they were losing Egypt. They, they were losing the empire, and they were damned if they were going to lose their footprint in the Middle East, a.k.a. Palestine. So they clung to that. And so Isaac Beacon talks principally about the Irgun, largely told through the character of, Ir, uh, of Hugo, the confrontation with the British. And then once the British decided to leave, November 27, 47, um, once they said, we're out of here, then there was a civil war with the Arabs. You know, because the British stepped away as referees and said, we're not going to keep you all apart. And so the Arab and the Jew went at each other's throats for, you know, six months in an unfettered, unrefereed, <laughs> you know, cage match. And, and, and there's a violence to that that I thought that, that Eurus's book had, had dodged. You know, I thought I thought that he had not adequately represented the claims of the Palestinians, the claims of the Jews, uh, and the, the and the flat out the flat out clash between the two. And that's what I went. And then, of course, um, there's Deryasin and there's Kfarzian, the two massacres in the book. Neither of which were mentioned or have been written about. I don't know that Deryasin has been written about by an American uh, for an American audience. I felt that was terribly important to write about. Those scenes are intense. They're sweat-producing, heart-throbbingly mm. intense. <sighs> well, um, should we switch to something lighter, uh, like marketing? How about your marketing tips? And be- before you tell me what your marketing tips are or or will be, let me just tell you that. And I, I laugh at this. So here we are at the Rocky Mountain Fiction Writers Conference, and I bump into you in the little bookstore area. And I thought maybe I could just escape out without buying everyone's books that I enjoyed hearing from. But you grabbed this book and you put it right in my hands and you walked me to the register. 
I don't know if you remember I'm a big that. guy. I am a big guy. <laughs> and I may never have purchased this. I may never have purchased this had you not done that. And so let me just tell you, thank you for doing that. And there's a marketing tip for you. If you see someone, and I've done this, I've done this at different events where there might be a young girl come up and and they like fantasy. And so I'll open my book to the first page and I'll just say, here, read this and see if you're interested. And inevitably they'll end up buying it, which is lovely. But this was hilarious, and I will never forget how I bought this book. So thank you. But any other marketing tips besides <laughs> bullying? Um, yeah, I'll give you a marketing tip. Um, I don't do it. Um, I, I, um, and I don't recommend that. It annoys my publishers, um, <laughs> that I don't market my own work, but I didn't come up in that world. I've been, I, I published my first book in the, in the early nineties and, and back in the day when they put you on tour and they sent out galleys and you, I, I remember sitting on an airplane flying somewhere and the cat next to me was reading USA Today, and there in the bottom right-hand corner of the page he was reading was a, was a quarter-page ad for, for The End of War, one of my books. And he just said, hey, I'm not trying to be an egoist here, but it's probably cool. I wrote that. And, and I was on the back page of, of Kirkus Reviews, and, 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 and you know, they used to spend money to market books. And now what I hear is, you know, you need a platform, you need this, you need that, and I just won't do it. I don't. I don't like so, uh, social media. I, I'm, like one of my college students said to me, "If I haven't talked to you in 12 years, there's a reason." And and uh, I don't typically like sitting there writing about my life and reading about your cats and soup. I, I just don't. And and um, I, I I don't mind paying for a publicist to get me interviews and and you know and and and. But no, I don't. But I'm wrong. Let me say officially, I'm wrong, and I'm also t set in my ways, and I also have, you know, thankfully a, a decent-sized audience that's hopefully waiting for me to write books, so I don't have to work as hard as as a beginning writer for marketing. But I am the absolute last person to ask about marketing because I am an I am an unadulterated, dyed-in-the-wool curmudgeon about it. But I, you, I but you. But you will put this interview up on wherever you want. Oh, yeah. And I will <laughs> grab people one at a time and drag them to a cash register. Sure. <laughs> was, you can make a good living if you can put the time aside for that. Definitely. I absolutely love it. Um, you do lots of community things. Uh, one of them being you do a free creative writing class for veterans. And you do all other lots of things. What? Why? Why do you do so much? How do you do so much? Oh, okay. Now this gets into the self-laudatory part of our uh, interview where I say nice things about myself. Um, but, but Laurel, you've been kind to me and I think I owe you truth. I try to have what is called a servant's heart. I just do. I try to. Um, I, I'm lucky. See, I get I get my way. I mean, my name. I mean, look, look, look. You know, okay. Well, like that right there. That's my name on sideways in the spine of a book, right? So, and, and in bigger letters on the front. So I get that. So because I get that, I got the time and the bandwidth for others to try to get what they want, if I can help. 
I don't, I don't need, the minute I hit save over here on my desk, then I start thinking about other people. And, and, I, and I have the luxury to do that because, um, because I'm getting something really important, something that means a lot to me. I'm getting to teach and I'm getting to be published. My writing's being published. And I, I um, so these nonprofits are how I sleep at night. These nonprofits are how I spread the gospel of the writer. And I, I, everybody that studies with me, I tell them right off the bat, um, I don't care what you write. Any story you write, any story you write can be publishable and extraordinary if you write it like a storyteller. And that's my, that's my gospel. But I, I, I've been lucky and I've had good partners. Uh, my best friend, Lindy, uh, and I founded a thing called uh, the Mighty, um, uh, we founded uh, the Podium Foundation. You can look us up, Podium RVA, and uh, we're about 14 years old now, and we serve um, Richmond area uh, youth. We give them uh, communication uh, training, and you know we got several hundred kids, and we're almost a million dollar organization. I founded the James River Writers with my friend Phaedra, um, and the James River Writers. You can look that up. It's one of the big preeminent um, West uh, East Coast uh, writing conferences, and it's lived for 20 years. With my partners at Virginia War Memorial, about a mile from my house, I founded a thing called the Mighty Pen Project. Um, and folks, if you're interested in reading the writings, really good writings of veterans, uh, Google v, uh, Google Mighty Pen Project, VCU, Virginia Commonwealth University, VCU. We have an archive of 130 stories that's growing all the time, edited, vetted stories from you were there, veterans from World War II up to you know the war in terror today. And I work with veterans, and my pal Lindy. And I uh, are working, we've started a thing called First Responses, where we give writing program training to uh, cops and firefighters. So I do a lot of teaching. That's fabulous. How do you, or do you, how do you unwind? I don't need to unwind. I, it, it, it annoys me to unwind. I am, um, you got to wind up again. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm lucky. My, my brother... My dear brother just got back from a, a 10-day cruise with his girlfriend in the Bahamas. I'm like, what'd you do? He goes, oh, we ate, we this, we hit golf balls, something else. Sounds like hell to me. Yeah, I, you know, I couldn't go, I can't. Ugh. The thought of not working, the thought of not writing, I couldn't. I, oh, but why live that day? You know, I, I, I put something down every day. Um, I love it. I don't, so I don't live a life that requires me to rest from it. Uh, I require a life that, I live a life that requires me to train for it. I go to the gym. I stay healthy. I watch what I eat. I get my sleep. Um, and then I sit over there and I, I do the best I can. I bleed onto the page. And um, I do this, though. At, at night, I'm a reader and, and I, I, I smoke a cigar. My dad was a cigar smoker and uh, it's a filthy habit. But every time I light a cigar, I think of my dad. It just helps me keep faith with, with my antecedents. And uh I will uh, do one of two things in the evening. I will read my own work and smoke a cigar and edit it, or I'll read something else wonderful. I, I like the classics and smoke a cigar. And uh, I guess that's unwinding, but but I I don't uh, I don't walk away from the work. I think that's my, my characters get annoyed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you asked, annoyed with me. You asked me for an extra hour this morning, so you could get a full morning of writing in. What, what did you write this morning? What did you work on this morning? Oh, well, <clears throat> I am taking a break from the Israel books and I'm writing, a, I'm, well, I'm, I'm writing a claustrophobic 
adventure slash humor slash romance slash historical slash thriller slash mystery. What? Book. Yeah. I'm writing a book called The Trans-Mongolian Express. Um, it, it's, it's an entire thing that takes place on a train rushing across Mongolia and then Russia. Well, China first, then Mongolia, then Russia. It takes place during the five days of Chernobyl because people couldn't, if you wanted to go to Moscow, you couldn't get in because the air lanes were closed because of the plume. So I got these five people on this train that got to get into Moscow, but they can't fly. So they're all trapped on this train. And then there's a murder and then there's a Mongolian cop. And then there's, and they all got to get off the train, but because there's been a murder, the cop says nobody gets off this train. But but three of them, if they don't get off the train, are going to be murdered. And and it's um yeah, so it's a detective slash humor slash uh, assassin slash um, romance. And it's claustrophobic because it's it all takes place in a train. A train. That sounds like fun. It's okay. At the risk of being condescending. After writing so many historical novels, after writing these things, just sit down with a book where I get to make it up. It's so fun. It's so fun to just make something up. I don't, I mean, if I want to throw someone off a train, I don't have to read three books to see if Churchill got thrown off a train. I'll throw him off a train if I feel like it. It's great to just make <laughs> I love it. And I, I think that's a wonderful Diversion. I think it's a wonderful way for you to refresh yourself uh, from the heaviness of of books like yeah. Isaac Speakin and the other ones you've written. So I, now I'm looking forward there's to that sequel. one. Yeah. Let yeah. me mention there's a sequel yeah, yeah, yeah. coming. Yeah, it comes out. It's it's now uh, mid January 19, uh, 2023. And I mean, when you're watching this, and the sequel comes out in May of this year. Called. Um, and it picks up. It picks up six seconds after this book ends. Oh wow! What's the what's the title? Yeah. The shortest road. Okay. The shortest road. Um, King Farouk of Egypt, the uh, epigraph at the beginning. King Farouk is quoted as I paraphrase that um, that the war between Jew and Muslim was a holy war, and that young men were coming from throughout the, the Islamic world, and they saw fighting the Jews as the shortest road to heaven. So I was like. Okay, you know, so the book's called the shortest road because it, it 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 book two details the Arab-Israeli War of 1948. Book three, which will start next year, will be about the Suez War, and book four will be about the '67 War, and book five will be about the '73 War. And then what? Um, I'm, I'm calling the series. Well, I, I hope, uh, but mm -hmm. I'm calling the series the Promised Wars. You know, the Promised Land, the Promised Wars, and the five principal wars that were fought between Jew and Arab that created and established and firmed up the, the state of Israel. When they, once they defended themselves these five times, then, then the Palestinian territories were, were in place. The, the Jews had won and or lost whatever they were going to win and lose equally for the Palestinians. And then it got into kind of a stasis war. But those five wars I thought were fundamental, the creation of the state. So I, I wanted, as I said earlier, I want to create a document that if you read all five books, once I'm long gone, I'll leave behind me in my wake. You'll go, I get it. Because I promise you, when you read in the paper that the Palestinians are upset because 12 of their uh, uh, 12 of, of their clansmen, the Palestinians were 
evicted from an apartment building in Jerusalem and there's riots going on, they're not rioting because of that eviction. They're rioting because of what happened in 1947, 48, 56, 73, 69, 73, 67, 73. They're, 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 they're fighting because of that, not because of what happened today. And we can't be honest brokers here in the West. We can't get between these good and, 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 and God-blessed people. I mean, there's no question that the Muslim and the Jew, it, it, with, it, you don't have to be but so versed in, in religion to know that these are ancient people, right? And we can't get between them and help them and guide them and referee and, 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 and sustain them and understand them unless we understand the antecedents of these problems, of these, these quandaries. And that's why I'm writing these books, to help us to help us be good stewards of our world and be good stewards of these people. And Laurel, I, I'm not a polemicist, right? I mean, hopefully you read that book and it felt fairly agnostic. I'm not taking sides. Right. I yeah. look at the story. Yeah. I look at the story and go, okay, what is Malik's view of this? What is Rivka's view of this? Um, it's an adventure. And I'm not trying to be political. Or as, or I'm not trying to be an apparatchik and all this. Um, I'm trying to be as agnostic as I can and make it make it the romance and the adventure and the political powder keg that it was. I'm not trying to say I'm not trying to advance anyone's agenda. And my reason for that is because I, like any other, I hope, ethical person, don't like privation. I don't care who it is. I don't want to see a Palestinian child starve. I don't want to see a Honduran child starve. I don't want to see a Jewish child starve. I don't, I don't want to see children hurt, separated from their parents. I don't care where you came from. I don't want to see, I don't want to see ignorance and oppression of anybody. And so if, if the Jews are, are putting their foot on the throats of the Palestinians for their own reasons and the Palestinians are reacting uh, with equal uh, violence, um, the, the reasons are we, we sometimes stop when we see the violence. And I'm trying to get beneath it and say the whys of it. And I don't want to see a Palestinian hungry or oppressed any more than I want to see a, a Jewish woman um, injured on a bus. I don't, I don't want to see it. So I'm writing these books so that people will be able to discuss these things at a level below the violence. You were not preachy at all in this. And, and I, as, I, as I mentioned before, it was so honest. It was so all sides represented in a way that made perfect sense to me and left me with, you know, how would I react in, in that situation? Which choice would I make? And and really not even having the answers, because how can you have the answers to questions when you're not in a situation? But um, you you did what you set out to do. I'll, I'll tell you that. And if anybody wants to disagree with me, tell me why. Um, and I will say again, this is a book everyone should read, whether you're a writer or not. Your craft is incredible. The stories are incredible. The characters are amazing. The topic is is topical still, right? Will I think will always be. And so, oh, you already told us what's next. You've already given our our authors and our writers plenty of advice. Is there will book two of your series be available for pre order? Yeah, I mean it's already up on Amazon. All right. So people can find you. Where Where do you want people to find you? My website, just authordavidlrobbins.com. Do you have shout outs to anyone? Yeah. My really good friend, Lindy Bumgarner, um, who, who was 
we're kind of getting through life together. You know, she's a mess. I'm a mess. Um, she's like my good right arm and I'm, I'm hers. My dear friend, Catherine Sands, who's, uh, you met at the age, uh, at the, uh, conference today's her birthday, January 10. So it's if you're my out birth- there and- it's my birthday too. I wasn't going to say that, but today's my birthday Hooray! too. Aww. Well, a shout out to you, Laurel. Thanks everybody. Send Laurel happy birthday wishes. Uh, with Catherine's birthday today. And yeah, and, and I want to thank, like I did at the conference, I want to thank all the veterans uh, and all the first responders and the people who, when I talk about a servant's heart, this is my way of serving, but my life's not at risk, right? And my safety uh, uh, and, and my, my, my treasure and, and, and my home, I'm not risking any of that. So I, I serve in the ways I can, but I want to I dip my brow and, and, and put up a solid fist for all the first responders and all the veterans, the men and women who have worn this country's uniform and our community's uniforms, and the ones who do it the right way, which is the vast majority of them, uh, they have my they have my respect, and at least here in my community, my my uh, my good right hand in, in their behalf. Thank you, David. And again, for those of you tuning in, we just had an amazing visit with David L. Robbins, author of Isaac Speakin. You have to get this book and read it, and you have to tell everybody else you know that they have to read it. And again, I I don't say this about too many books, but I'll read this again because it was it was that good, and and I will learn more about craft here. I've I've got I've got sixty thousand words I've got to go through and uh, <laughs> get rid of a lot of stuff because this is how I want to write. <laughs> I want to write like you. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you. And David, you will send me some photos and listeners out there, you can find links and photos to this on my website at leadvillelaurel.com. And uh, David, I am really looking forward to reading all your other, all your upcoming books. And I hope to see you at another conference sometime soon. Laurel, you want me? Thank you. Everybody be safe and uh, have a good new year. Yeah, you too. Thanks so much, David. We'll see you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Alligator Preserves is hosted and produced by Laurel McCard with technical support provided by her husband, Mike McCard. Follow her on her website at leadvillelaurel.com where she writes about life, real, and imagined. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy her books. Find her work at amazon.com.